Good to be with you guys this morning. So we are uh, in week number three of a series entitled Wealthy. And uh, what we're doing is we're looking at uh, the different ingredients that we believe that God has put before us that if we will walk into them in the right way, it will lead to a wealthy life. And by wealthy life, like we're not talking like how much money is in your pockets because you can be filthy rich and be absolutely miserable. Uh, An excess of money does not always yield or equal a wealthy life. But the things that God has put before us, week number one, we talked about uh, the first ingredient in a wealthy life is a a wealthy relationship with him. And we dug into that. Then last week, week number two, was uh, this other thing that God puts in front of us is relationships with one another, that he wants to lead us into deep and meaningful connections with people, and that that is a necessary and key ingredient into what God calls a wealthy life for his sons and daughters. Well, this morning is wealthy life ingredient number three. And what it is, is a wealthy relationship with creation itself. Does that sound good? Is anybody nervous that we're going to go back to 1965 and we're going to go all hippie and get like crazy weird like creation stuff, right? Sometimes I think Christian, yeah, some of you are excited about that. I'm with you. I see those hands. I'm all about that. Some aspects of the 60s were cool. Some were not, right? Um, but what, what I think is that as, as followers of Jesus who love his word and seek to have our lives aligned with him, we don't really talk much about creation. And um, we don't understand that it is a core part of what God wants to lead us into that leads to a wealthy, rich significant life okay now in order to dig in we're going to go back to the beginning because a lot of times if you want to understand something go back to the beginning of the story oftentimes you'll find a lot of helpful information there let's go to genesis chapter one as we dig into what a um, wealthy relationship with creation looks like we have to go back and understand how god set it all up and um, we'll get some insights into our relationship with this world this beautiful world that god has made Genesis chapter 1, and let's read verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, that is totally fine. Just listen along. I'm reading it. You can trust me that I'm really reading it, but just listen. Genesis 1, verse 26 says this. God is in the midst of all his creation work. He's making all the things that we now see that have become visible around us. Then God said, let us, this is Father, Son, Spirit, the triune God speaking here, let us make man in our image after our likeness now and here's the key on our relationship with creation itself and let them it's male and female and let them have dominion dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth And then verse 28 is very similar. God kind of reiterates this call regarding our relationship with the created world. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So if we're going to understand our relationship with the, crea- with the created order, what we see here is that God is inviting us to rule over it. And when we think about ruling um, in, in the world that we occupy, like kings and queens, princes and princesses, they're the ones who rule. 
That's exactly what God is doing here in the world with people. He has made us to be kings and queens, or New Testament, a royal priesthood. It's an invitation to rule. In in God's design here in Genesis chapter 1, there is a very clear order of things. That God is in charge of all things. He's the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. He's in charge. But then God then, he makes human beings, male and female. He creates us in his image. And then he puts us under him to what? To rule over the created world. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the creeping things that creep. It's interesting, when, when I was taking Hebrew... Uh, we actually translated Genesis chapter 1. It was one of the things that we did over the course of uh, our time in, in the Old Testament in Hebrew. It's original language. And I remember when I got to verse 26, and I remember like sometimes things in the Bible pop out when you move more slowly and methodically through them. And I remember translating, right, and God put Adam and Eve there to right, rule over uh, all the creeping things that creep on the earth. Like the, the ESV here literally gets the Hebrew right. Now that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. Why is, why is God so specific that we would rule over the creeping things that creep? Why would he tell that to Adam and Eve and be so explicit about it? Well, it's interesting as the story continues in Genesis chapter 3, here comes a creeping thing that creeps slithering its way into the beautiful garden that he has, that God has made. And the creeping thing slithers in, the serpent, the snake, creeps in and then begins dialoguing with Eve and suggests to Eve that maybe we ought to adopt a new order of things. Instead of the old order, Eve, and then Adam was right there with her. It's not just Eve's fault. Adam, Adam was along for the ride too. But the serpent says, instead of God being in charge and then you ruling under him and ruling over creation, the serpent suggests that maybe we ought to go with the new order where the serpent becomes the prime influencer here. And then underneath the serpent, the serpent would influence people People would be next in line, and then God would, well, we don't need to really think about nor worry about him too much. Let's just sweep him out of the garden. Serpent comes in and says, did God really say? Dot, dot, dot. Okay? This is a sinister thing that is happening here because the serpent is suggesting a totally different upside-down view or way that Adam and Eve should move forward. Now, for those of us that, uh, that know how the story continues, we, we know here that the serpent is uh, not just your common run-of-the-mill snake, but this is like the Satan, the adversary, or Satan, as we call him, moving into the garden in the form of a snake. But, but at this point in the story, we don't know that yet. So let's, let's not talk about that, and let's just be where we are, and it's a creeping thing that creeps into the garden, suggesting a different order. And here, here's what happens. Um, Adam and Eve agree with the serpent and then begin to align themselves with the serpent's influence. Adam and Eve choose to eat of just the one tree that God said not to. Their one option out of God's perfect order of God, people, and creation. Adam and Eve opt out, and now it's the serpent who's the prime influencer. Adam and Eve taking their cues from him, and God, well, we don't really care much about what he said because he's probably not out for our best interests anyway. And the result of flipping the order upside down is catastrophe. It's devastation in the Garden of Eden. It's chaos. And chaos always happens when we flip God's 
order of things upside down. Now, just to take this out of the scriptures and just to like land this in a way that makes sense to us in our everyday lives, um, here, here would be an example of that. Let's take alcohol, for example, right? Here's the proper order of things. God is in charge of all things, people under him, and then alcohol would be under people. We would rule over it. And in God's good order of things, we know from the scriptures that the alcohol is a gift of God. It's to be used in moderation, and it is awesome for times of feasting and celebrating, for gathering with friends, wine, whatever your thing is, I don't care, but it is a gift, and it is part of God's very good creation when we are ruling over it and in charge of it. But now when we flip the order, instead of us ruling over alcohol, flip the order for a second, and let's take um, alcohol and Consider what it looks like when alcohol is ruling over someone. We would call that person an alcoholic. That person is enslaved to alcohol. They can't function well. They can't live well unless they have it. And for an alcoholic, I think if we were to ask them, are you living a wealthy life in regards to your relationship with alcohol? Is it a wealthy existence? They would say, no, no, it is not. It is much more akin to poverty. It is horrible to be enslaved to this thing that is a master because it devastates a life. Anytime we flip the created order upside down, it devastates and it leads to a poor quality of life. Take food, for example, as another thing. As human beings, as we reign over food in our desires and all things related, we are free to enjoy all the things that God has made for our enjoyment. God made food to be good. He could have given us a drip bag of nutrients and then we just live our lives. But he said, no, that's not cool enough for my world. I want to make food awesome. So he made bananas and mangoes and pineapple and all vegetables are good too, but fruit's way better. But he made all sorts of delicious things for us to eat because he's good and he's a good father and he's kind, right? And when we're ruling over food, it is, uh, it is a great thing. We're eating in moderation, just enough, right? And we're enjoying ourselves and sometimes we're feasting and eating too much and sometimes we're fasting because that's a good thing to do sometimes and we're getting all the nutrients that we need. And at that point, when we're ruling over food, it's a great relationship and it can lead to a, a wealthy life. But when food begins to rule over us, and in our eating, we never have enough. We're never satiated. Our desires are never filled. We're always longing for more. We walk into the kitchen, and we're not hungry, but we start rooting around and looking for food. Like, that's, that's not a, that's not a life-giving, enriching relationship. That's like the alcoholic who is enslaved to it. Sometimes we can be enslaved to our desires for food. And the word that we use for that is gluttony right? We can be enslaved to food, and that is a created order then ruling over us. That's to flip the order upside down. Anytime creation is ruling over a human being, it leads to a poor quality of life. And we've got names that we associate with the different ways that creation rules or can rule over us. If money is ruling over us, we call that greed, not, it's not a great, wealthy relationship with money. When sex is ruling over us, we call that lust. It's not a wealthy way to move forward in our relationship with sex, right? When stuff, things, 
or ruling over us. We call that materialism, right? And the materialist becomes then the shopaholic, but you're buying the next thing and it's never enough. And then you find the next thing, you think that's going to do it. It's never enough, right? Materialism is things ruling over us. For some of us, our looks are the thing that rules over us, and we call that vanity, right? And we never feel like we're good enough to walk outside of the house because we're not looking our best. That leads to a poverty of living. For some of us, um, some people live in constant fear and anxiety about the created order messing with our lives. Like, oh no, a tornado's going to hit, a flood's going to come, cancer's going to invade, right? Fear, worry, and anxiety regarding the world we live in does not lead us to a wealthy kind of life. It actually leads us, it is an ingredient to poverty, right? And Jesus says, don't worry about all these things. Don't worry about that. I've got you covered. I'm your father. You're my son. You're my daughter, right? You're a ruler here. You're a royalty. Don't worry about that stuff. Doesn't, doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen to us, but he's going to walk with us through all of those things, and we need not walk with fear, anxiety, and worry. But poverty results, not, not literal economic poverty, but a poverty of life results when creation rules us. And if you don't believe me, like you do a litmus test this afternoon. Drive on the highway, get off at an exit, and find someone who's standing with a sign. And, and ask them to share their story with you. And I would guess that maybe half of the people that you would talk to would say that heroin is a part of their life. Ask that person if heroin ruling over them leads to a wealthy quality of life. Ten times out of ten, they're going to say no. It is devastating. It is a catastrophe. It is leading me to a poor quality of life because heroin is ruling over them and they are a slave to the substance and they can't live without it, but it is a horrible way to live. To be poor in our relationship with creation is to be ruled over. To grow into a wealthy relationship with creation means that we start to set the order right and that we begin to actually rule over it that we would not walk as a slave but we would walk as sons and daughters of the king which makes us royalty as well we would walk in this calling now regarding all the things that i just said from right alcoholism drug addiction uh gluttony Greed, lust, materialism, vanity, fear, worry, anxiety, all of those things. I think I outed just about every single one of us in the room. Let me be clear. I outed all of the truth tellers in the room. If you tell the truth, right, if you're not a liar, then all of us in some way, shape, or form have been ruled by one or more of these things. Have our, you get it. And so anytime that happens, what, what tends to happen inside of the human heart is that we begin to feel uh, guilt and shame. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve um, walked in a flipped upside down order, the, the word I love in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve felt naked. They felt exposed. That's guilt and shame washing over them for the first time, and it didn't feel good. It felt horrible. And the question is now that Adam and Eve, have, like they've rebelled against God. They flipped his order upside down. They said, God, no, thank you for your way. We're going to find the new way. We're going to listen to the serpent. Uh, after they did this, they feel guilt and shame. They're feeling naked and exposed. The question is, 
um, what does God do with them in that place? This is a really important question. We talked about this two weeks ago, but we can't hammer this in enough. How does God meet with them in that space where they have done wrong, they have been ruled, and they're feeling guilt and shame and nakedness? Here's what God does in Genesis 3. I'm not going to read it, just trust me. What God does is he steps into creation as he loves to do. He steps in, and then he grabs an animal, and he offers the first sacrifice. Blood is spilt for the first time in the world. And then God takes the skins of this animal, and what does he do? He covers Adam and Eve. He clothes their nakedness. Previous to this, Adam and Eve, in their guilt and shame, were pasting fig leaves all over their body. Okay? Read insufficient covering to cover nakedness. God shows up, offers a sacrifice, and completely covers their shame and their guilt. And then what does Jesus do? The same thing. Jesus steps into creation and he offers an altogether better sacrifice. He offers himself. And with his offering of himself, he clothes and covers us. He covers our nakedness. He covers our guilt and our shame. That's what he does. The journey out of poverty in creation, where we are being ruled by it, where we are walking in sin. The journey out of that is not God showing up and saying, you are such a loser. Can't you get this thing right? How long are we going to struggle with this food thing? Can't you get sex in order? You're such a wicked person. That's not how God shows up. Sometimes we think that's how he shows up, but that's not him. That's our imagination. That's the whispering of the serpent trying to distance us from him. Anytime we're feeling naked and ashamed and guilty, what God does is he shows up and he says, I've got a covering for you. I love you. I don't want you to walk naked. Uh, This guilt and shame thing, I didn't make you for that. Let me clothe you and cover you with Jesus right? That's what he does. That's how he shows up. And then after he says, I love you and I've got you covered. Now he says, now also in addition to the covering I've provided, now follow me into the life that leads to life abundant. And we're going to start flipping this thing over again, right? Because if God just showed up and like shamed us into changed behavior, our behaviors might change a little bit here or there. We might be able to manage behavior with like the boss who just yells at you all the time. You might change your work ethic a little bit, but it's not going to change your person, right? So what Jesus does is he loves us. He enters into relationship with us. He meets us in the deep places of our soul and he starts to change who we are so that we can start to right the ship with his empowering presence in our lives. But it starts with his gracious and kind move into relationship with us, okay? So first step to getting out of creational poverty is to start flipping the script where we go back to Genesis chapter 1, back to Genesis chapter 2 where it's God and us and then creation whom we are ruling over, not which is ruling over us. Now from that place, right, the the invitation to wealth actually gets um, bigger and more pronounced, Right? The invitation to wealth is not just right living, it is so much more than that. And to get a picture of that, we're going to flip ahead in Genesis, Genesis chapter uh, 41, 
Let me give you the context of what's going on here, right? Talking about a growing in a multiplied, expanding, wealthy relationship with creation. We got to look at a guy named Joseph. Um, Joseph was um, sold out by his brothers. His brothers just rejected him. Some weird family dynamics going on. And Joseph is outed and uh, and he's sent into Egypt as a slave. And Joseph finds himself in Egypt, but he's like he's with the Lord, and the Lord is with him. There's a really cool, special relationship there. And uh, and to, to get to the immediate part of Joseph's story that's pertinent to this, Pharaoh, who's the leader of Egypt, begins having these troubling dreams, very vivid. Okay, Pharaoh's the king of Egypt, and the in the it has the same dream, but in two different ways. The first dream is Pharaoh dreams that there's seven fat cows. And they're plump and they're looking good. Like if you're a rancher, if you're a steak guy, these cows are good cows, okay? But then after the seven good cows come seven really thin and meager cows. And then like there's a clear juxtaposition, seven fat, healthy cows, seven meager, thin cows. And then Pharaoh has another dream where there's seven healthy, robust, fruitful stalks of grain. And then after that, there's seven really small, spindly, very little fruit stalks of grain, and those grains eat up and devour the healthy ones, okay? And this is the kind of dream that is troubling Pharaoh. And so he brings in all of his magicians and astrologers and enchanters, all the people that Pharaoh knows to turn to for help, and nobody's got any idea. Like, Pharaoh, we don't know what that means. That's uh, perplexing to us. It's a head-scratcher. We're not sure how to help. And Pharaoh's perplexed, and he's getting impatient. He wants some help. Finally, somebody says, hey, there's this guy named Joseph. The Spirit of the Lord is with this guy. Um, He's done, like, dream interpretations in the past. Maybe we should bring him before Pharaoh and see if he knows what this means. And so they bring him in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't even explain or say what the dream is. He wants to know if Joseph's legit. And so Pharaoh says, all right, Joseph, tell me my dream and tell me what it means. Spotlight on Joseph, a lot of pressure here. And, And the Spirit of the Lord meets with Joseph in that moment. And Joseph explains the seven cows and the seven stalks that are healthy and then the seven that aren't. And Joseph says, hey, uh, Pharaoh, God is giving you a glimpse into the next 14 years. First seven years are going to be an abundant harvest. The rains are going to come. There's going to be a great harvest and fruitfulness of the land. But then for the next seven years, there's going to be a famine. It's going to be, it's going to be meager and bleak. And then like, that's Joseph saying, here's what, here's what God told me. But then Joseph goes from dream interpretation mode to creational boss mode. And he says, and now, Pharaoh, here's what Pharaoh should consider doing. And then he says, Pharaoh uh, should consider a strategy that in the first seven years that you would build storehouses and silos in proximity to cities and that you would take a massive portion of each harvest and store them in these grain cities for seven years, store up, store up, store up. And at the end of that, then for the seven years of famine, we would distribute the the grain in an appropriate way so that everybody can get through the meager years to come, right? So the picture here is that Egypt is in creational trouble. Famine's coming. And who comes to the rescue? Pharaoh? No. His enchanters and astrologers? No. Any of Pharaoh's directors and leaders and dignitaries? No. The person who comes to solve the creational problem in Egypt is a son of God, Joseph himself. And God is helping him with this problem. Joseph is what? He is ruling here. And God is helping him rule well. Sometimes as Christians we have what we'll call a misguided and thin thinking about so many things but here's one of them 
that we believe that the Spirit of God, that like his main role in our lives is to show up as we're reading the Bible and as we are praying. Okay, so the Spirit's there when it's Bible time and the Spirit's there when it's prayer time. But as soon as we walk out of that room and out into the world, now we are orphans. We're alone and we got to figure everything else out here on our own, right? That is not the case, right? We think that the Spirit of God is only concerned about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He is concerned about that. He does provoke that in us, but that's not all he cares about. We think that the Holy Spirit only cares about animating the spiritual gift that he's given each of his followers. He does care about that, but that's not it. In Genesis, the Spirit of God is helping Joseph with a forewarning of things to come in the land, the land of Egypt. And he helps Joseph come up with a grain storage plan in proximity to cities. He's helping Joseph come up with how are we going to build all these silos? We got seven years to do it. We got to figure out this building campaign thing. Spirit of God helps him with that. The Spirit of God helps Joseph with communication lines in a pre-internet, pre-cell phone environment. Communication's a little more difficult back then, but the Spirit of God is helping Joseph with communication. And then right, once the famine hits and the seven years of bounty are over, the Spirit of God is helping Joseph with a sales and distribution plan that blesses and provides for all of the people in their need and provides incredible resources for Egypt itself. The Spirit does not just come and help us in what we would call spiritual things. The Spirit of God is clearly helping Joseph in the real, rugged, physical world, solving real, rugged, physical problems and then verse 52 right the spirit is inviting joseph to rule in egypt in a grand way and verse 52 i love this joseph has two kids and then he's gonna go name his second child and here's what joseph says the name of the second child he called ephraim why did he call him ephraim well here's what ephraim means for god has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction in that fruitfulness, I believe Joseph is talking about physical fruitfulness because it's abundant around him. He's in charge of a lot of things. He's doing some real and significant ruling and subduing in the world. And Joseph says, I like this. I think I was made for this. God, thank you for making me fruitful in the land of Egypt. And I'm going to name my son Ephraim so that I'm reminded that you made me very productive and fruitful in this place, and I love it. Doesn't that sound like a cool way to relate to the created order? Compare this to the person who is stuck in some sort of bondage to alcohol or drugs or sex or food or whatever. This is an altogether different experience in relating to the created world. This is fun. 
It's actually the same thing that happens in Proverbs 31 with the Proverbs 31 woman. Joseph and the Proverbs 31 woman, they're like, they're like living, the, a, a simul, they're living the same life, just separated by some time and by circumstances, but the Proverbs 31 woman is doing the same things in the physical world that Joseph is doing. And just as a side note here, just for context, in Proverbs, foolishness in the beginning of the book is likened to a prostitute. She's loud, she's boisterous, she's calling to all sorts of any guy who will listen. Foolishness is incarnated in the form of a loud and boisterous prostitute. And when you submit yourselves to her, it is catastrophe, it is devastating, it is a poor quality of life. But in contrast to that, wisdom is personified at the end of Proverbs as a wise and virtuous woman, okay? And the picture here is that this wise and virtuous woman is doing lots of things in the real, rugged, out there physical world, right? Wisdom in the flesh doing real things. This is beyond quiet time. This is beyond prayer. This is beyond spiritual gifts. This is beyond fruit of the spirit. All those are good and necessary and a part of this, but it's also in addition more than that. Proverbs 31, trust me here, what's she doing? She's walking down the street and she sees a field. And because this woman's got a whole bunch of businesses going on, she knows she's got some cash burning a hole in her pocket. So she considers this field and she says, yes, this is a, a field worthy of buying. She purchases the field. It's just bare ground soil. And from there, what she does is she says, well, a bare ground field is not what God would have to be in this place. It's not enough. God is more than that. And so she says, well, we ought to adorn this field with grapevines. So she goes and she buys some grapevines and she plants them. What's she doing? She's making a vineyard. Okay? She's taking an empty, nothing land and she's making it into this beautiful, productive, fruitful kind of a place. That's what she's doing. Okay? She could have taken her money and just gone to the local pub and drunk herself into oblivion. Alcohol could have been ruling over her. But no, that's not who she is. She's ruling over it. And so she's going to be the one who's going to be the winemaker. And she's going to drink and enjoy. And she's going to sell. And she's going to bless people with it. Because she's the boss. She's in control here. And then right, Proverbs 31, she's trading with all the local merchants the things that she has made and created. She is clothing her family well. She is giving to the poor. She is constantly working with her hands skillfully because her physical hands have learned physical skills that really do good and productive things in the physical world, right? Wisdom in Proverbs is not just about answering questions or waxing philosophical and sounding smart. In Proverbs, the goal of wisdom is always that it would incarnate, it would become visible and real in this world. Beautiful picture, absolutely stunning what God shows us. And this is our invitation to the life of Joseph, who's ruling over much, and he's doing well. And God is helping us do well. Invitation, like the Proverbs 31 woman, to rule over much and to do it well. And that God would help us and empower us to do this well. Boy, life gets fun. It gets enjoyable when we start moving into this kind of creational relationship. We were made for it. The royal priesthood, sons and daughters of the king, 
ruling over. Final point, last point. This is a straight up theological one. I just want to be clear on this and be careful. Because we talked about Genesis 3 and the created order ruling over us. And I want to be careful here. And this is the appropriate place to say that the serpent that slithered in, the creeping thing that creeped into the garden, it was Satan himself who took on the form of a creeping thing that creeps. And I want to say that because I think what we need to understand is that creation is not our enemy. The physical world is not against us. It is not out to get us. It is not the enemy of us. Check this out in Romans chapter 8. These are some of the verses that we just skip over because we have no context to understand them. But Paul thoroughly understood everything we just talked about, which is why he wrote this in Romans 8, verse 19. Right? How does creation view us? Is creation out to get us and crush us and hurt us and maim us? No. Paul says, For creation waits with eager longing, For the revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. It didn't want that. It didn't want the order flipped. It didn't sign up for that. It didn't co-sign with that. And it wasn't for that. But because of him who subjected it. That's why it happened. In hope. But even through all of that, creation had hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself is waiting for and yearning for us to flip the order and to be clothed with the covering that Jesus gives, all of our guilt and our shame gone, nakedness gone, And that we would grow then to bear the image and look more and more like Jesus. And from that place, then we would actually begin to rule over it in the way that God made us to rule over it. Creation itself is longing for us to step into that role. Proverbs 31, that empty void field is yearning for a wise person to come and to do something with it. The famine that's coming in Egypt, right? The land itself is yearning for someone to come and rule that thing who will help people get through and help life to continue and thrive through those difficult years. Creation is longing for it and God is inviting us into it to rule over this beautiful place that God has made in the same way that God rules over us with love, kindness, with grace, with wisdom and goodness, with skill. That's the invitation. And when we start to do this, our life begins to get wealthy and it begins to get good in ways that we may never have yet experienced. Band, come on back up. We're going to sing a couple more songs. Think about this and I'm going to pray for us as they come up. It's quite an invitation that we have been given. Every invitation that God gives is a good one. Let us not forsake any of them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the great and high lifted up king. And we say thank you that you sit in that place. God, if anyone else, including ourselves, sat in that place, life would be, they would be poor. Father, we want to allow you in our lives to have that 
priority place. And we want to submit ourselves to you because you are good and because you are kind and because you show up with grace and love and you cover us. And Father, I do pray that you would allow us to hear often and regularly your invitation to rule over. Father, that some of the things that have ruled over us, that you would fill us with your presence, that you would empower us to begin to rule over them, to put them in their proper place because they're yearning for that to happen. And then from there, God, that you would expand and multiply the things that you put under our charge and that we would skillfully and wisely, kindly and graciously rule over these things because we know that when that happens, everybody is blessed. Everybody wins. Father, make us uh, to be these kinds of people. Lead us into wealth in this world that you have put under us. Help us to step into the mantle empower us to do so. We know that when we do, it will be for your glory and it will be for our joy. Thanks for loving us so well. And because you love us so well, God, now we just want to sing some songs back to you because you're worth it. I pray that you would be pleased as you receive these songs that we sing to you. In Jesus' name.